story, and we're on chapter 12 this week, and works out to be very fitting because what we're looking at in the life of David today deals with his family, and since this is Mother's Day, it's an opportunity for us to draw some thoughts for the family out of this chapter. When we see the life of King David laid out for us, what we see is a mess in his family life. You look at some of the things that happened, and you might even actually question that they're in the Bible. Like, isn't this David, the man who's referred to as a man after God's own heart? And then we read some of the things in that 12th chapter of the story that he was involved in, and we wonder, you know, how did this happen? But David needed a lot of grace in his own home, just as we do today. Now, if the walls of your home could talk, what would they tell? Would they tell a story of joy and celebration? Or would they tell a story of conflict and angry words? Maybe you grew up in a home where your mother and father were always yelling at one another, and you would fall asleep at night with a pillow over your head, trying to muffle out the sound of their voices. And you told yourself, like, it's going to be different for me. I'm not going to yell the way that my mom yelled, but you are. And then maybe you looked at your father and you saw him as very indifferent and unconnected in the family. And you said, I'm not going to be like my father, but you've ended up just being like him. But would your walls tell a story of courageous commitment or would they be broken promises? Now we stand before our spouse on our wedding day, just as I had Philip uh, Issacharu and Melanie Hodnott's wedding yesterday, and we promise, to, for better or for worse, that we are going to love that individual. But then some things come up. Like, things happen in our story. Like, maybe we didn't know he was going to have trouble finding a job. We didn't know she was going to struggle with depression. We didn't know that there would be a special needs child. We didn't know that there would be that unexpected attraction to a co-worker. We didn't know that she wouldn't really care about how she looked or that he wouldn't be attentive to her. And something in the story changes. And you thought you could go through this together. You thought that your love was enough to be able to take you through everything. But it's just kind of become mundane now. You're going through the motions, all the chores that you have to do, running the kids from one extracurricular activity to the other, and the romance has just kind of faded a little bit. I doubt that David ever imagined that his family would go in the direction that it did. I doubt that he thought that his story would end up being such a tragedy. But his family was just like a train wreck, really. So look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the springtime of the year, the season when most kings took their soldiers out to fight, David stayed in Jerusalem and sent Joab out as general in charge of David's men and the whole army of Israel. So I guess he felt like he wasn't needed. And he basically said, okay guys, I'm going to sit this one out. You go take care of it. All kings would go into battle, but not David. So his entire army is away fighting. And he can't sleep. It's early in the morning. So he goes up onto the roof of the palace and to basically get some air and to watch the sunset. So he tells himself. But he knows what's happening at this time in the morning. That's when all the women go up onto the roof of their homes to bathe. 
And from his vantage point on the palace, he can see every rooftop in that city. And he notices Bathsheba, and she's just so beautiful. So he says to one of his aides, who is that woman? And then he goes, uh, David, that's Bathsheba. Remember Uriah the Hittite? Uriah the man that has fought beside you so many times in battle? Uriah the man that's actually out in the battlefield right now fighting for you? That's his wife. And David summons for Bathsheba to be brought to him. They have a relationship. She gets pregnant. And now he's desperate to cover up his secret. So he calls Uriah back from the battlefield. And he's thinking, I've got to get him to sleep with his wife so that people will think that when, sorry, a pregnancy has resulted. So then he gets Uriah back from the battlefield because he's got to make it appear as if this is Uriah's child. But Uriah, there's no way that he is going to go home in the comfort of his bed and sleep with his wife while all his buddies are out there bleeding on the battlefield. So he sleeps on David's doorstep, on the palace doorstep. So this doesn't work for David. So then he thinks, okay, I've got to take this to another level because I've got to cover up what has taken place. I've got to give the illusion that my family is okay, that my family hasn't done anything wrong. And a lot of us understand that when it comes to our own marriages and our own children. Like we want it to appear as if everything is just perfect. We want to appear like the perfect Christian family. And that we feel this pressure to make everyone around us think that we don't have any problems. But you know what? We've got problems. Every family, we have problems that we deal with. So David, he's got to take this to another level. So he sends Uriah back to the battlefields, and he sends a sealed letter along with him. And Uriah isn't actually aware that he's carrying his death warrant, because this is a letter to his commander, and the letter says, Put Uriah out on the front. I want him where the fiercest battle is taking place. And then once he's there, the rest of you withdraw from him. So the orders were carried out. The men started to withdraw. Uriah is killed, and many of those other men are needlessly killed as well. And word comes back to the palace, and then David takes Bathsheba as his wife. And we wonder, now, how did this happen? And then, when you think it can't get any messier, Ammon, one of David's sons, rapes his half-sister, who David's daughter Tamar, Tamar tells her full brother Absalom about it, and Absalom plots for two years to get his revenge, and he finally kills his half-brother. And that sets off a whole series of events, and eventually there's a civil war going on between David and Absalom, and it ends with Absalom's death. It all falls apart. Like, how did it happen? Maybe we need to go back in the story and see if we can find out how things started to fall apart. Now there's a way of telling a story that's called reverse chronology. It's like when you go to a movie and it starts off with all this amazing action and drama and you don't really understand what's going on and then 
The movie continues, they go back to the start of the story, and they tell you how it actually arrived at this point. So maybe this is what we can do here with David's story. We can do some reverse chronology in order to study the life of David and find out where things went wrong. And there's value in doing that because for many of us, there's a place where things started to go wrong. And if we don't see it, eventually everything will fall apart. So it's good to go back to that time and place, to the decisions that we made that led to the mess. Now people will tell me, I don't know how it happened. I don't know why she acted that way. I don't know why he acted that way. I don't know why my child is doing this. But if we look back, we see that there was something that led to that. So there's a scene in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I'm sure if it was to change, that David's life would have played out differently. It would have changed the rest of the story, the course of David's family life. And last week, Jim talked about David killing Goliath. So this David is only about 18 years of age, and he's taking food to his brothers who are fighting in battle. And as he approaches, he sees the giant Goliath there, and he hears him basically curse the army of God. And David says, no, th this can't be. So he decides he's going to fight Goliath. And Saul the king had some incentive for whoever would fight Goliath. He would be exempt from taxes for the rest of his life, and he would get the hand of Saul's daughter in marriage. Now, David might have said, you know, the taxes for the rest of my life, that's kind of nice, but maybe could you show me a picture of your daughter on your iPhone? <laughs> But we know that David didn't really do that. He was doing this out of obedience, as Jim pointed out in his message. So David went ahead, he killed Goliath, and as a result of that, he ended up marrying Saul's daughter. And her name was Michal, or Michael. And it's kind of an unusual name for a girl. But doesn't the story start off in a romantic way? It killed the giant, win the girl's heart. That's the way it started. And when we approach 2 Samuel chapter 6, things are going along really well for David. He's the king. And things at the office are just great. The nation of Israel is doing well. They've even recaptured the Ark of the Covenant, which had been lost for many years. And they're bringing it back into Jerusalem. There's a parade. There's a celebration. And David starts to peel off his outer garments and dance before God as a celebration. And while he's doing that, his wife is watching from a window in the palace, and she's really embarrassed by the behavior of her husband, especially in front of these other women. And wives, you know what that's like, because all of your husbands have embarrassed you in public. It's part of our job description. It's going to happen at some time or other in your marriage, so expect it. So David is embarrassing Michael. And she's resenting him for it. And here's what happens when David comes home. 2 Samuel 6, verse 20. On David's return, he wanted to bestow good favor on his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. And then Michael sarcastically says, The king has distinguished himself today in front of his servants' maids. He revealed quite a lot, just as the lowest of the low might expose himself. So he comes home, 
from this great day at the office, and the first thing she does is basically sarcastically attack him. Oh, how the king distinguished himself today, dancing around in his loincloth. And David, he basically gives it right back to her, but he's immediately defensive in verse 21. It was for the eternal one that I danced. The Lord chose me in place of your father Saul and all his descendants. So he starts attacking his in-laws. Not a good thing to do when you're in a little bit of marital conflict. So he appointed me to rule over Israel, the Eternal's people. Now, I actually think that it was a beautiful moment when David was so exuberant in his celebration that he pulled off his outer garments. But Michael doesn't think so. And then in verse 23, And to her dying day, Michael, the daughter of Saul, was humble before God and did not bear a child. Therefore, no descendant of Saul ever regained the throne of Israel. So in other words, they never slept together again, and you never hear of Michael again in Scripture. Now why does the Scriptures include that little dialogue? Like if things had gone differently in that moment, maybe it would have changed the other moments of the story. Like what if David had included his wife in the celebration? What if she was right there beside him as he was dancing in front of the ark, allowing her to be a part of all of that? What if Michael had been encouraging to her husband and she had just gone up to him and hugged him and said, you know, this has been an amazing day for you. Like, I'm so proud of you. Or what if David had listened to his wife and tried to understand things from her perspective? Now she's hurt here a little bit. And what if there hadn't been sarcasm right at the start? What if there hadn't been personal attacks? What if someone had said, I'm sorry, or someone said, I forgive you? What if David had fought for his wife with as much faith as he did for that battle with Goliath? How would the rest of the story have changed? Do the stories in our marriages, the stories in our families, are all written in those little things, those things that seem so insignificant, those things that happen day after day. And there's an accumulative effect as they build up over time. And those daily things end up then becoming big things. And we think for David's family, the big moment was there on the roof when David looked at Bathsheba and when he then entered into that relationship with her. We think that's where it all fell apart. But really, it goes back much before that. You see a big tree that falls down in the storm. And you think, wow, that storm was so bad that it uprooted the tree. And then as they're sawing the tree up, you look and you see the tree was actually rotting from the center. It had been rotting for years and it had basically been falling for years. So it was just the, that that wind was strong enough to make the final push to bring that tree down. One author described it this way. He said, when we get married, we give our spouse some kind of burden to carry. So I've got a rock here this morning, and we're going to let this rock symbolize the burdens that we sometimes give to our spouse and to our family to carry. So first of all, we... We say, okay, here's this rock, and it's called workaholism. And I, I want you to carry it. 
and it works over time like, because you love that spouse, but then it becomes a burden. Or maybe he gives you a rock, and that rock is his hot temper. But because you love him, you're mentally determined that you're going to deal with that temper. And it's not going to bother you. It's not going to eat into you. Or maybe it's an even bigger rock, and it's something like an addiction to alcoholism or pornography. And once again, you want to stay with him. You're determined to carry that rock. Or maybe it's nagging, and maybe it's criticism. But you love your spouse, and you're determined to carry that rock. But sometimes that rock just gets to be so heavy, and eventually that rock gets dropped and it's shattered. And then we wonder, you know, how did it come to this? But it's not that moment. That rock's been carried for a long time. It's just that eventually it becomes so heavy that we can't carry it any longer. Like we ask our families to carry a rock. We'll say, you know, my kids can carry this rock. But the fact that we fight a lot, that doesn't matter. They're kids. They're resilient. They don't mind that we yell at one another. And they are okay for a while. But then that rock gets dropped. So what we can draw from 2 Samuel 6 are some helpful lessons for us in dealing with our relationships in marriage and in our families. Now the first one that we want to look at is when there is conflict in marriage and in the family, identify what the real issue is. It takes some time to do that. It's hard to do, but we need to take the time and do that in the heat of the moment. But Michael just lays into David as soon as he enters the palace, and David is immediately defensive. But what would have happened if David had really listened? Like maybe she's upset because she was left out of that celebration. Or, and maybe she felt a little insecure with David dancing around with all these other women. She just needed to be reaffirmed. So we need to identify what the issue really is. Is the issue really that your husband comes home late? Or is it that you don't know if he's going to come home at all? Or is it that when he does come home, he's there with his phone and he's checking text messages, he's checking emails, and he's not really at home? Like, what is the real issue? That's what we need to identify. And secondly, in the day in and day out managing of marriage, learn to find a good time and place for difficult conversations conversations. Like during uh, the time that we spend in the car, that's not a good time for something like that. Or when we're at the table or just before going to bed, those are good times to build positive things into our marriage, into our relationships. But we end up choosing those as the times when we bring up the criticism, when we bring up the conflict and the fighting. So we have to be intentional. We have to find the right place. Like as soon as David walks in the door, Michael gives it to him. Like this wasn't the time. This wasn't the place. If she needed to express some things like that, she should have just asked him to meet with her later. And David should have been mature enough to say, this isn't the right time, Michael, okay? Let's just talk about this a little later. So it's important to find the right time and place where you can set aside some of the defensiveness, some of the emotion of the moment, and really discover what the issue is and how it needs to be dealt with. 
stick to the issue. But David expanded the issue, didn't he? He brings in some other things. He brings in his in-laws. And immediately, he makes it broader. And we have a tendency to do the very same thing, don't we? We have an issue that we're dealing with with the spouse, and we start bringing up something from the past, or we bring in something else that doesn't really apply to the situation. And what we end up with is seeing things starting to fall apart. And I start with the positive. I know Michael didn't like David dancing around in his loincloth, but maybe she could have had something positive in that to say, David, you had some really neat dance moves there down on the street. Like, she could have done something. Because all he needed was a positive word of affirmation. He needed his wife to tell him how much she appreciated him. Because like, all these other dancing girls are, had done the very same thing. He needed a positive word of affirmation. It was a great day of celebration. He wanted his wife to be impressed with him. But when she wasn't, then he goes on the defensive and he starts swinging. He wants some encouragement. He's trying to win the heart of his wife, but instead she's critical. Maybe some of you know what it's like to live with that. Because we want the men of our church to step up and be leaders. We want them to step up as husbands and fathers to be the spiritual leaders that God has called them to be. And men has who love their wives in service and sacrifice, men who do it with humility and gentleness. Like nothing will drive a man to be passive quicker than someone who is married to a wife who is critical and negative and discouraging. So here's the way it goes. A wife is critical and negative, and her husband feels like there's nothing he can do that's good enough. He feels that he can't win. He tries, but there's something else that went wrong. He's just not able to do enough. So it leads him to the point where he says, like, it doesn't matter what I do, it's never right, so I'm just not going to bother doing anything. So he sits and watches sports on TV all day long. It's discouragement and criticism that leads men down this path of passivity. God is calling wives to be the spiritual encouragers in their home to encourage their husbands, to encourage their children. But Michael comes at David, and she's critical, she's sarcastic. But what would have happened if David had listened, if David had apologized? The Bible tells us that as men, we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And when we wonder, okay, how did Christ love the church? He acted as the reconciler of the church. That's how much he loved the church. So he's the one that goes to you. He's the one that pursues you. So husbands, you be the reconciler in your relationship. You be the one that goes and says, I'm sorry. And some of you might say, well, I didn't do anything wrong. Maybe you didn't do anything wrong in that circumstance, but you've done plenty wrong. So just apologize anyway. We might be 5% responsible, or 95%, whatever it is, we apologize. It's the role of the husband to be the reconciler, to bring that all together, whether with our spouse or with our children. Just think of how dramatically different that story would have been if David had taken that approach. Now, if the walls of your house could talk, maybe the story they tell would be one of conflict, 
brokenness. I know Stacy has shared some stuff here today. Like anger, disappointment, bitterness. Maybe it's time for them to tell a new story. Because God would love for our homes to tell a story of love, of grace, of mercy. He'd love for your home and mine to tell the story of a redeeming power. He'd love nothing more than for us to be able to tell a story of how our home was broken, that there were broken pieces, but that God brought that all together again. So as you keep reading in David's story, we notice that David can't hit rewind. He can't go back and change the things that have happened in his life. He has made a total mess. But the amazing thing is that God uses that mess for his glory. And then we come to the book of Matthew in chapter 1, and Jesus is about to be introduced. And we're wondering, okay, how is this going to happen? In what way will he be introduced? And look at how that happens in verse 1. This is the family history, the genealogy of Jesus the Anointed, the coming King. You will see in this history that Jesus is descended from King David, and that he is also descended from Abraham. In another translation, he's referred to as the son of David. So even though all of these things happened in the life and the family of David, even though he messed up on so many occasions, God still used all of that, and he brought the Savior of the world down through the line of David. So God... Would you do for us what you did for David? Would you take the broken pieces of our families and would you bring them all back together again and do that for your glory? Would you redeem what we've made a mess of for your own good? And it's not too late. Like we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper right now. And this is a special time for us each week because it's a time when we can kind of sit there and think back upon our week. And we can think about the times when we messed up. We can think about the times when we need to say, I'm sorry to God, please forgive me. And maybe there's a time of brokenness in your life where you can come to God and say, I want to be dependent upon you. I want you to build that all back together for me. We celebrate by taking the loaf and the cup together. And if you're a guest with us and have a relationship with Jesus, then please hold on to each of those as they're passed to you, and we'll take them together. Stand. 